It's week 48 of 2017, and we've got AWS conferences going on, MacBooks with people breaking into them, and Cyber Monday. That's all coming up right now on the IT Pro TV podcast. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host Peter Van Rysdan, and, and I'm joined as always by Don Bazette. Don, how are you doing? I am ready and ripping and roaring and all those other R words for today's episode because uh, you know sometimes we have one specific topic that we want to hit, but today we're we're going to do a just a, a shotgun of IT stuff. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's uh, we termed it, it's week 48 in the year and. Um, the AWS conference is going on right now uh, with Amazon, and we've got some security issues going on, and uh, and we kind of wanted to talk about net neutrality. But let's first talk about something that uh, could put a lot of people at risk, uh, and that is a security flaw that's going out there. So for the last, I don't know, I, I think I got this, this new computer um, maybe two or three weeks ago, and every day it asked me, do I want to install High Sierra? And this week I was like, you know, I've, I've got a, a little bit of time. I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, make that jump. And luckily I did not because there is <laughs> an exploit that is uh, that is targeting people that are on specific versions of High Sierra. Uh, and from what I understand, it can basically give you admin access to a computer. So can you tell us a little bit about what you know about that? Yeah, so, you know, the attack is, is really an interesting one, and it shows how easy it is for security to be kind of subverted. Um, this affects macOS High Sierra 10.3, which is the, the first generally available version of High Sierra. Uh, if you were to install today, you'd be installing 10.3.1, which has fixed the problem, right? Uh, but 10.3, the, the one that was released about two months ago, uh, it's got a little bit of a problem. And basically what it boils down to is anytime you perform an administrative task inside of macOS, it prompts you for administrator credentials. You know, you got to give it a username and a password. Even... Even if you're logged in as administrator, it will still prompt you and ask you for you to, to put in your credentials again. And the thing here is you can enter a username of root and leave the password blank and hit unlock. And it'll fail, right? Because, well, you know, it's no password. But then if you hit unlock a second time, it, it unlocks. And, and now you have elevated privileges and you can go through and start performing tasks. And worse, what it's actually doing on the back end is... It's setting the root user account to be blank, and now an attacker can access your system whenever they want without a, a password and just using the, the main highest security account available on your system. It's just really, really bad, right? Uh, but to put it in perspective, I, I guess there's a few things we need to think about. It's first off, so far it's a local-only attack, so I'd have to have access to a machine. If I had access to, like, maybe, uh, Peter, if I saw you walk away from your desk, I could run over to your desk real quick and perform some administrative task and hit that unlock button and make sure that root account gets set with that, that no password, right? And then I can go back to my desk and start accessing you over the network. And, and you wouldn't necessarily know it, and I would have full access to your machine. So that, that's pretty bad, but it does require a little local access. So that, that gives us some kind of perspective of the risk. Yeah, and so that's the important thing to note, that, that it does, at least in the beginning, to set up, require someone to be at your machine. So, uh, you know, the, the initial thing that I know they were coming out and saying is, just keep your machine with you or make sure your machine is off. Um, but, but I guess if you even if you had it off, 
if someone came in, you're at the the login screen. Are they able to access that at that point? Well, this this kind of ties back to the problem uh, where Apple doesn't really focus on enterprise. They don't focus on on security that way. They focus on consumers. What do most consumers set their laptop up to do? Auto log on, right? Uh, in Windows, they made that kind of hard to do. In Linux, I don't think they allow it uh, in most distros. But in Mac OS, when you set up your initial user account, it's just a little checkbox that says auto log on. So you turn on your computer and it automatically logs in. Now, normally, even if an attacker or somebody steals your laptop and it auto logs in, they can't do an administrative task. Because if they tried, it would prompt and you have to put in the password. They would have to know it then. With this attack, they don't even have to know the password. And so that's the bad part there. Now, there was a lot of information going on around about how to fix this. And I, I kind of chuckled a bit with some of it. Because uh, what's going on, if you're a Mac user, let's say you're a hardcore Mac user, you probably didn't even know there was a root account anyway. You know, with Mac OS, it's a very pretty OS. It's very easy to use. The user interface is very intuitive, right? It's got a lot of good things to it. Under the hood, Apple didn't create it from scratch. They took BSD, which is a open variant of the Unix operating system, what, what Linux is based on. Um, and they use BSD as their, their core. And in the Unix world, you always have a user account called root. R-O-O-T. And that root user has full access to the system. Now, on a Mac, that user account is not normally available. You can't log in as that user. It has a password that you don't know. And it's, it's protected. So this vulnerability, this problem, when somebody tries to use that root account, it's basically not able to use that account. And it somehow triggers and it recreates the root account with no password. That's, that's the problem that it does. So this is actually kind of a flaw in the user interface that's tying back to a service that was provided on, under BSD that most Mac users would never even use. So the early fixes where people were coming out and saying, well, what you need to do is you need to set a password on your root account. Well, in a Mac, you don't have access to that account. And so they had some various workarounds. They, there were some problems. There were some people saying, disable the root account, and that causes all sorts of problems. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Uh, but fortunately, you don't have to worry about it anymore, right? Because now Apple released the 10.3.1, or 10.13.1. Sorry, I, uh, High Sierra is 10.13. I think I said the wrong number earlier. So 10.13.1, uh, uh, and that one fixes the problem, right? So the, the exploit doesn't work anymore. You don't have to change your root account. You can leave it. You don't have to worry about setting a password. It, it, it's fine. Just update to 10.13.1. Now, you were saying to me earlier, uh, before we started, that that Apple will sometimes just push you updates and not like you're kind of used to in Windows updates where it's mm -hmm. asking you. So is that something that's happening here or uh, or should I actively go and do that if I haven't already? Yeah, they haven't officially stated it yet, but I know that uh, my laptop, I, I was going to bring it here on the show and, and show you guys the exploit because I hadn't updated yet. Uh, it was already updated. So you, you may already be set up for automatic updates. There are times they do an emergency push. It's happened at least one other time that I, I can remember uh, when there was a, uh, a vulnerable application that was being pushed out through the App Store, and they were able to, to reach out and, and do a forced update on that. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if they've actually gone full-on auto, but I know that mine updated, and, and, and several others have too. So it looks like they are pushing that out aggressively. But even if they don't, just make sure you do your updates. It, updates are super simple under High Sierra. You just go into the Mac App Store and hit update. It's, it's that easy. Uh, it's not even a very big update, and they fix the problem. And they're, they're looking into how that flaw made it in there. You know, Some developer changed some setting, and it resulted in the ability to reset that root password. 
that's a big deal. That's a big yeah. problem. And so they, they've got to find out how that happened. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that down the road. And I'd like to get back to the simpler days where uh, if your neighbor's computer was up, you just went and posted something on Facebook about how much <laughs> you liked someone or something like that. Maybe I was thinking that maybe this this is the FBI or uh, you know CIA. I know they've they've had their issues with Apple about getting into devices. So here's a way that they can get into devices and uh, yeah, maybe you know, go around I, that back door. I'd be curious to see how this worked with File Vault. Uh, you know, it, with, with File Vault, your your hard drive is encrypted, right? And it's tied to your credentials. And if you power on the system, and it auto logs on, that would break File Vault. So File Vault requires you to log in. But if you're already logged in, in theory, somebody could go and disable File Vault, which would then decrypt the drive. And now you'd have an unencrypted machine and your average end user probably wouldn't even know that happened. So you probably could decrypt somebody's drive, leave the computer right there, and they'd never know you did it. And then a week later, you could seize the machine and have access to all the information. Well, there you go. We've solved the We've cracked it with with uh, made-up facts. It's always the NSA's fault, right? <laughs> it's always the NSA's fault. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually kind of a good segue uh, to our next topic. We want to talk a little bit about uh, net neutrality. That's something that I mean, it's been in the news for definitely a few years now, and, and it's um, something that um, I think more and more people understand what, it, what we're talking about now when we say net neutrality. But it, it's in the news now because they're talking about rolling back some regulations, I think, that were put in in 2015 uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, and they're talking about rolling some of those back now. And we thought it would be just a good idea. You know, we don't want to get political on this show, and we don't want to, you know, really take sides with things. But an issue like net neutrality, it, it's a little confusing, I think, because yeah. it, it's one of those things like um, the Patriot Act, where everything these days has a name that sounds so fun and inviting, where you're like, well, of course I'm not against this or I'm not against that, because it sounds great, but it's it's names <laughs> they put on things. So I, I think we kind of want to start by explaining a little bit First, of, of what do we mean with when we're talking about net neutrality yeah. and, and what this actually affects? So, I mean, do you, do you want to take a stab at that? I can, sure. I can try. But. So, um, you know, to, to really understand net neutrality, we have to go back to the early days of the Internet, that the Internet was a DARPA project. It was created by the, the U.S. government and really the military uh, kind of behind that. Uh, they wanted a network to be able to communicate between systems across the world. So that was that was how it started. And a number of universities were attached to it and other other areas that were receiving state funding from the U.S. So it was really a, a U.S. initiative. And at the time, the U.S. government and some of these universities were paying for all the core backbone service. Now, if you're a network engineer, you understand how the backbones work. If you're not a network engineer, you might not. That when you connect to the Internet, you have an ISP. Right, somebody that you you pay. Right uh, here, we have GRU at, at my home. I have AT and T. There's all these different internet service providers that you pay money to. Well, those internet service providers have to be connected to the other internet service providers, and so they do that through these high bandwidth uh, connections that are, are what makes up the internet backbone. And there's a number of large cities, like uh, I know Atlanta is one, and a few others where these backbone providers kind of converge, and that's where you're able to cross between the networks. So the backbones are really important, but we don't pay the backbones. I don't, I don't send a check up to the backbone. I send a check to my ISP. Now, my ISP needs to be connected to a backbone, so they send a check up to the ISP, right? They're the ones who, who pay for that service. So uh, the backbones do make money that way. Well, in the early days, the backbones didn't even make money that way. They, they made it you know, from the government funding it. But now the Internet is a worldwide thing. It's not just tied to the U.S. anymore. Every government across the entire world participates in the Internet. So those backbones are still essential to give us full access across all these different networks and all these different ISPs. 
But the reality is we just write one check, one check to whoever our ISP happens to be. Well, the reason we're able to do that is because of net neutrality, a set of rules that just basically say everyone has to get treated equal on the internet. It doesn't matter who they're paying. It doesn't matter who they're connected to. They all need to be treated equally, especially across those backbones. But the business side of it, here's kind of the two sides of this, right? On the business side of it, the backbones are run by companies like AT&T or um, uh, there's... Um, Comcast, Verizon. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and you know, several of these large, large organizations, a lot of which we don't do business with, right? But they're footing the bill for these massive backbones, and they're, they're charging access to some of the ISPs, but sometimes they're receiving way more traffic than they should, like denial of service attacks that are going on. And, and who, who's footing the bill for that? Well, these backbone companies are. So they want to be able to step in and charge more money for the people who are using more bandwidth. So if you have somebody like Netflix, who at one point was responsible for something like 40% of the internet's traffic, yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous number. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. I've seen some of those numbers thrown around. And uh, yeah, I'm sure other things are catching up now. But when they were really the only player in town, that was taking up a lot it of was a lot. bandwidth. And, you know, Netflix had to pay their ISP, but that was it. You know, after they were on the backbones, they were going to all these other destination ISPs and they, they weren't paying them at all, right? But they were definitely benefiting from it being there. There's a lot of companies that benefit from it, even smaller companies like ITPRO TV. Mm -hmm. we, we benefit from it because we do video streaming and we, we pay our ISP, but we don't pay any other ISP. So the, the backbone providers are the ones who really want to be able to step in and say, we're going to create, uh, you know, we do selective billing. And I like to call it selective billing. In the news, they always call it an internet fast lane. You got to pay to go fast. But that's not reality. The reality is you're going to have to pay to go normal. Yeah. You know, it's not a fast lane. You, you pay to get on the normal road. And if you don't pay, you end up on the slow road or on no road at all. That, that's where you'll end up. So as an end user, as a, a just regular citizen, somebody who needs access, I might hate. Uh, that net neutrality is going away. Like, I, I don't want to pay extra to get faster access, and I don't want to have to sign up for one plan if I'm just using email and Facebook and a different plan if I'm going to watch Netflix. I don't want to have plans like that. that. That doesn't make sense. But from a business perspective, the people running the backbones, they actually do have a business case here. Like, both sides have a really good argument, I think. The part that, you know, really is shady is what happened with the the uh, the submissions for comment to the FCC, where there were millions of comments saying, we hate net neutrality, get rid of it. And they're bot-driven and automated, and they're just junk yeah, submissions. And, and we talked about that when, when you went to um, the Wild West Hackenfest, yep. where um, we had an interview uh, that Don did with Gravwell. And if you go back, that's probably uh, podcasts, 16 or 17, I think. Um, but if you watch that interview, they talked about how they were able to actually go in and um, and, and use some uh, logic to look at the, uh, the times of the submissions, the quantity of the submissions, the types of submissions, and filter out what turned out to be bots or, um, you know, farms of, of computers uh, sending in that information. Yeah. And I think it's stuff like that, you know, that is just – it's. Um, conspiracy, it's uh, paranoia, it's whatever, uh, has kind of overshadowed the real argument. And the real argument is there's these businesses that are providing bandwidth and they want to get paid for it. And then there's consumers who have been getting some of that bandwidth for free all this time and they want to keep it free. And both sides have a good argument for it. 
and which one's going to win? You know, the, the the businesses do have more lobbying money. They have more pull in the government, and obviously they're they're getting their way. The rules are being repealed, but we'll have to see if if they act on it. You know, and and when that first company steps in and says, "This is our Netflix level account, and here is our email and Facebook account," we have to see what the public backlash will be. Yeah, and the worry the worry is, uh, I think, for a lot of people is um, not necessarily the. Um, like the, the fast lane, like you were saying, if uh, let's say our ISP came to us uh, and said, hey, IT Pro TV, do you want to spend more and we'll uh, prioritize your data over other data so you can tell customers, hey, you can get this information faster. Well, that's great. But what if they go the other way and say, hey, if you want to still be on the Internet, you have to pay us this rate. And, and all of a sudden, um, you know, it, it, put, it puts... Uh, certain types of businesses at risk, especially those that are uh, sending a, yeah. a large amounts of data. And, and then you get into the whole, well, I have to sign up for this internet, like you said, to get IT Pro TV, this one if I want to get yeah. Netflix. And and the problem is for, for most people, for, for the end consumer, it, it's essentially monopoly. You've got, you've got one, maybe two internet providers. Depend, if you're in a big city, you're going to have fiber, you're going to have you know, di- some different options, but uh, a lot of a lot of middle America, you've got one cable provider, and that's the provider that's providing the internet as well. So yeah, well, you know, let, let's stop thinking U.S. Let let's think globally, right? What's this going to be like globally? So right now, uh, you know, a lot of these backbones are American companies. They're here in the U.S. because that was where a lot of the stuff was created. But their network goes all over the world, and in many other countries in the EU, Australia, Asia, wherever. And this net neutrality stuff. That's really just us. That's the United States, right? So if we take away those rules and AT&T and Comcast and, and whoever uh, all step in and say, all right, we're going to start charging extra, what about outside of the U.S.? Right? All Netflix has to do is say, okay, well, um, if you're a European customer, we're, we've got our European data center, and you're going to get yeah. traffic from there, and we're not affected. And it may actually encourage those businesses to do more business outside of the U.S. than inside of it if the cost goes up on that. So I think there's some some economic repercussions that will happen here as well as international. I mean, the EU, that is a lot of, of power and technology all built up into one organization. They could easily say, you know what, we're going to fork the Internet and and just – you know, this is going to be our part of All the of network. Sudden we're North and Korea. We've got <laughs> we've got our own internet. They've got their internet, and we're the one you know yeah. launching a streaming test every two months, and <laughs> then yeah, it goes downhill yeah. from there. <laughs> well, anything, anyway, it's it's something interesting to kind of just keep an eye on, and uh, I I expect we'll be talking a bit more about it in the in the coming uh, weeks or months mm-hmm. as they're making some decisions. We're seeing um, what comes out of all this. But I uh, want to switch gears again. I know uh, we mentioned that the AWS conference is going on, Amazon Web Services, uh, and there's some interesting news that's been coming out of that for the past few days. Uh, we, we have a few of those articles here. I think um, one that's interesting to me um, and would probably be interesting to, to you all is uh, kind of a, a renewed partnership or, or an increased partnership with uh, VMware. So I know that's something that had been talked about for a long time of, yep. of having that kind of integration, but can you tell us uh, what you know about that? So, uh, you know, I, I was really glad to hear about this because VMware, uh, they're a big company. They are one of the, the founding fathers of our current virtualization movement, and they're really responsible for virtualization being as popular as it is today. Uh, it's very pivotal. But they have focused so much on private data centers that this whole cloud movement has kind of left them behind, and they've they've been hurt. You know, the the everybody moving to uh, AWS and Azure and Google Compute and, and all these different companies uh, that's taking money out of VMware's pocket because 
uh, AWS runs mostly on top of Zen and, and KVM. Uh, Microsoft's Azure runs on top of Hyper-V. Google Compute, if I remember right, runs on top of Zen as well. Uh, so these guys, they're not using VMware. The biggest virtualization environments in the world are not using VMware vSphere. So it's up to corporate and, and enterprise companies that are still using it in their local on-premise data centers. Well, that's getting smaller and smaller each year. So if you're a company like VMware, how do you plan for the future? Well, I think they're doing the smart thing here, which is, hey, let, let's partner up with a cloud provider. And they, they tried doing their own for a little while. They had the vCloud and vCloud Air and all that, and that, that didn't work out so well. Um, but they're partnering with AWS, which is you know, the biggest, and saying, hey, let, let's work together. Let's make it where you can have VMware, uh, you have a, a vSphere environment on-premise, and then connect it to AWS. And let's make it where it's easy to migrate a virtual machine into an EC2 instance and, and move it up there or bring it back. Let's make it easy to back up our virtual machines into S3. And then at a moment's notice, if our on-premise data center is destroyed, we can spin up EC2 instances right in the cloud from those backups and get it up and going, uh, which coincidentally is something I call an accidental migration. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's so many companies where they set up these backups to back up to the cloud. And you say, well, why don't you just migrate to the cloud? And they say, well, it's too hard. But one day they have a failure, and they have to restore everything. They restore it in the cloud, and then they say, why don't I just leave it there? Hey, look, we're already there. Yeah, why not? And I think that's one of the big things in this um, for, for a lot of companies is um, that, that ability to be able to kind of ramp up that, that off-site uh, disaster recovery plan. I know, we, you know we've talked about hurricanes here, this active, active hurricane season um, here in Florida. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've got... I don't know. It's blizzard time, maybe up north. I don't know what they have, uh, <laughs> but uh, you frogs, know, locusts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever it is. Um, but uh, having having the ability to to have that launch and roll out quicker in the event of disasters is it's good for everybody. Yeah, and you know, I, I love VMware products. I, I'm a VCP myself. I've worked with it for many years. Uh, but with with cloud moving the way it is, like when we designed our our organization here, we specifically planned for everything to be in the cloud, so that if our facility were to go offline. It wouldn't affect services, and I think more and more companies are doing that, and we'll, we'll see that continue as as time goes on. Yeah, and the other one I uh, wanted to bring up there was um, some announcement about uh, threat detection, and you know, again, something we talk about a lot here, but uh, some partnerships that that Amazon has made to make it so that that's happening for you. I think a lot of people maybe think, oh, well, my stuff's secure; it's in the it's in the cloud. I'm on AWS, but you know, you still got to take steps there and, and make sure you're you're monitoring those threats. Yeah, and AWS they, they've been a little bit kind of wishy washy on some of this stuff. I remember a few months ago they announced their their new uh, AWS WAF or Web Application Firewall, and and we use Web Application Firewalls on our site, and you know it's really important to be able to intercept attack traffic before it even gets to your web server. And so uh, a Web Application Firewall just looks at that traffic. And it says, oh, this is an attack pattern. I'll just delete the traffic and not send it on. It, it, it really works very, very effectively. It's no substitute for doing good, secure code. But if your web application has a vulnerability, this will protect you. But when they launched the WAF service, the thing they kind of forgot to mention uh, in the, the kind of marketing slick was that it had no rules by default. <laughs> if you deployed their WAF, it had absolutely no rules. It didn't do anything. But it gave you the ability to create your own rules. Well, most people don't have that knowledge. They don't, they don't know exactly what con constitutes their good traffic and bad traffic. And so that immediately made their WAF an enterprise product. Like it was small, medium, even large businesses couldn't use it unless they had the security staff that knew the rules to craft to create and, and protect their system. Um, they've 
been trying to correct that, but still haven't. And by and large, the WAF that they offer is pretty worthless. Um, it, it's, it's a framework. It'll become something one day. So their new th- service that they're launching, this guard duty, is a different approach where they're saying, look, we are going to partner with people. We're going to get some threat feeds, and we're actually going to do something. So here's a product that's good on day one that it can start inspecting that traffic and blocking stuff that's known bad. The big advantage to this is that it's like a one checkbox thing to turn it on. And now it's monitoring the traffic going through your ELB or through your Elastic Beanstalk, if you've got that, or you know, whatever kind of uh, framework or stack that you've set up. It can catch the traffic, filter it, and block the, the really known stuff. The negative of it is you don't have a lot of visibility into uh, the checks that they're doing and the types of data and how recent the data is. And even if you did have visibility into it, threat feeds are... Uh, I don't know. They, they're not much of a difference in the old antivirus that most people ran on their own computer. Like they're only as good as the definitions they have. So it's not a substitute for security. You still need to have security groups blocking traffic or VPC uh, network ACLs. You've got to have those. You've got to have your operating systems secured. Your web applications need to undergo code review. You still need all that stuff. But to have something like Guard Duty, where you flip a switch and now the majority of the texts don't even make it to your system, that's really ideal. That's a, a great thing to have. So definitely one you want to keep an eye on. Yeah, and so I'll try to make an analogy for the, the lay person like myself. So basically the, the old way was basically having a security system in your house and saying, great, I've, I've got security, even though you never armed it when you left and <laughs> didn't have it monitored. And now we're basically saying it's it's monitored, someone's watching it, and uh, uh, like you said, keeping up with the definitions is, yeah. is key. If you turn it on day one and... and don't have it actively going out there and finding the new threats that are coming. And this this says it has machine learning too, which I mean that just sounds it's got machine learning. Yeah, it's machines. Uh, so <laughs> artificial intelligence is out there securing your network now. So uh, or I guess your data. So that that's definitely a good thing. There are a lot of other little announcements coming out with uh, at AWS. I, I recommend you know uh, if it's something that you use regularly, go ahead and uh, and look into some of those. Some cool things coming down the pipe. Some cool partnerships. Uh, but those were kind of the two that. that definitely applied to uh, to our audience that we wanted to, to mention for yeah. sure. One neat announcement they did was that they're they're now starting to offer uh, bare metal appliances, right? So, you know, normally when you spin up a, an EC2 instance, even if you pick the most expensive one, it's still a virtual machine running on shared hardware. So there may be other Amazon customers on the same hardware, and that means that you don't get exclusive access to resources. So when you when you pay, even the, the CPU optimized, the really expensive EC2 instances, uh, you're still just guaranteed a certain amount of access. And granted, it's a lot, but it's not 100%. So being able to say, look, I, I need a 1,000 servers. I want them to be bare metal. I want to have complete access. I don't want to have to worry about uh, how many vCPUs I want to have. I, I have actual access to CPUs. That's a really cool thing for certain environments, uh, You know, to be able to do that and not be married to the hardware, that you can still end your service and the hardware just goes right back into to Amazon's pool, I think is a pretty neat thing. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of cool announcements there that, you know, related to AI, related to developer-specific things, things with um, Alexa. I actually saw the other day the the new little Alexa. I can't remember which this one's called, but it's the little screen, not the not the big oh, screen yeah. that YouTube yep. went away from, but 
<laughs> but yeah, the, the, the little was, screen that's now worth something. Was it the uh, Echo Spot? I think Echo is what Spot. it was called. Or yeah, Echo I, Dot. I, I put that on my. Yeah, that's. Uh, yep, Echo Spot. I, I put that one on my my Amazon wish list, but I think it's not. It's pre order. So this month. So um, you know, when I saw that thing, my my first thought was, wow, it's awesome! Like I, I should get this. It, it, it's got a little screen on it. It wasn't very expensive. I, I forget how much it's it was exactly. Yeah. Um, but then I saw an article which I, I was trying to look up real quick and couldn't find, uh, where somebody said. This is Amazon's quick method to get a microphone and a camera pointing at your bed. And <laughs> oh my God. Yes. because it, it's an alarm small. clock, that's exactly what I and thought. They, they the advertise that. you can use this as an alarm clock yeah. and it's right there. But if you think about it, it's a microphone and a camera pointing at your bed. So another microphone a, and camera another, pointing yeah, at my yeah, bed. Like if yeah. you don't have enough. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And that kind of leads me. It, a moment ago when you mentioned AI, right? Machine yeah. learning, it immediately made this kind of trigger go off. Uh, it's my trigger word now, right? I need to go to my safe place. Uh, but uh, there's so many IoT devices out there that are just getting getting you know hacked left and right because mm-hmm. the companies that put them out are just, they just cobble them together as fast as they can and sell them as cheap as they can. And they're putting internet for the sake of internet on them and not worrying about the security. Yeah, the, like the kids' teddy bears yeah. that connect up to the internet. I go, why? Why, why, why not? It doesn't make sense. Um, but, you know, we just had Cyber Monday. And well, we had Black Friday. That was technically week 47. We're, we're week yeah, 48. We're, we're past um, that. Well, we're the week in reviews. We, oh, whatever. But, but we just had Cyber Monday. And... I tell you, I, I didn't buy anything. I didn't buy a single thing on Cyber Monday, but I kept seeing the deals and I kept thinking, wow, this is a giant IoT junkyard. Like it was IoT thing <laughs> after IoT. Everything was was super cheap. And if we thought IoT was a problem before, I mean, now so many more devices. I was hoping somebody put out a, st- a statistic that said like the amount of IoT devices went up 10% after Cyber Monday. But uh, did, did you buy stuff on Cyber Monday? Uh, n- not any IoT things. I bought a jacket. And is it internet connected? It, it's unfortunately not. Uh, um, it was, I guess, it was last <laughs> season's. Um, I bought a jacket and wanted to buy. Oh, um, I bought some these these adorable little uh, socks that. And I, <laughs> so I don't buy things normally that I see in in ads. But I think I was on Instagram or Facebook on on Cyber Monday and saw this thing. An hour left in our sale, and it was you can upload your own photo of your dog, and it'll put it all over the sock. So I got this for my daughter. It's a little stocking stuffer. Yeah. So that, that's going to be adorable. Well, not internet connected, but well, you have to upload a photo of the dog, right? That's true. I so that. you've got to go to some random website and now upload. they know my dog. That's right, and they've got your contact information, so they know where you live. They know and... where to steal the dog from, and that I obviously care about the dog and would probably pay a ransom. See that that could I'm probably moving. usher in a whole new era of dog theft. Yeah, that's and true. yeah, but but we do need to think about some of that stuff though. Like, so here's this company, and I'm going to run with this one. They make socks. So their website is storing your personal information, and are they taking the steps to make sure that data is stored securely? And that's on their website. If it's an IoT device, it's even worse. Uh, when we have all these Amazon devices, the Amazon Cloud Cam that just came out, I did buy one of those, but it wasn't on sale because uh, I like paying full price, apparently, uh, where the cloud cam, did, did you hear about its vulnerability? No. This was technically week 47, but I'm, I'm going to cover it anyway. Why not? Uh, so Amazon launches this new cloud cam. It just came out last week. I, I got one, stuck it on my TV. Uh, and I figured, hey, these IP cameras, they're getting compromised, and companies aren't updating them, but Amazon, surely they'll update them and it'll be fine. Well, there was a flaw where if it lost internet connection, 
that when you logged into the app to see what the camera was showing you, it just showed you the last good frame, right? So if it was showing my front door and the front door was closed and the wireless connection dropped, oh. it would be showing me a closed front door, right? Well, what a couple of people did is they said, well, you know, we can target wireless antennas pretty easy and we can send deauth messages without even authenticating. So they could take a laptop, walk up to a house, send deauth or you know, any number of wireless attacks to basically bring down the wireless network or just gum it up. You know, if you jam up that wireless network, a wireless antenna can only send or receive one thing at a time. So if there's six antennas, which would be like high for an access point, then you just have to send six streams of data, and now you've monopolized it. Uh, Which you figured the, out an easy way to do after the oh yeah, well, those well, well, little antennas. You get. It's yeah. it's not that hard. Uh, but so they could do this. They could walk up to a house. They could do that. And as soon as they brought the wireless network down, they could bash open your door with a sledgehammer, go in and take all your stuff, and you could be watching in the app. Hey, my front door's closed. Everything's fine. You know. Meanwhile, they they walk right in. So it was a big vulnerability to have a security device like that shouldn't do what's called failing open, right? When it failed, it shows a good status. And and that's not how things should work. Firewalls shouldn't work that way. IDS, IPS, I guess IDS doesn't matter, but IPS, they shouldn't work that way. When they fail, they should fail closed. In other words, things stop. Everything stops when, when a failure happens. So these IoT devices, even the ones that are coming out from the big companies, aren't necessarily getting that level of security review until they get out there in the wild. And that's why it's so important not to rush to buy technologies on day one that haven't been fully tested, especially if you're going to rely on it. Like, I wouldn't use that cloud cam as my security system. Yeah. But it's nice to have if you want to watch the dog. Then yeah, but it's not. It, uh, I mean, I want I want that one where Amazon can come into my home and put packages down and yeah. know that I've got that good security. But, uh, no, I've got one of those. Uh, it's Foscam is the company, F-O-S-C-M. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a little PTZ camera that I can control on my phone to, you know, check in on the dog or if, you know, there's someone there, you know, installing something. Um, and I think about that now. When I when I go to the app, it shows me until I hit the play button, it shows me the last frame it had that, yeah. I, that I watched on there. So, um, you know, if, if someone didn't understand that, you could easily interpret that the same way as, yep, the dog's still on the couch. Well, this is amazing. I don't even have to hit play. You know, so let's talk about Foscam. So why okay. did I buy the Amazon Cloud Cam? Because my old camera was a Foscam. And there was a, a known exploit from my camera firmware, and they haven't released a patch, and they aren't releasing a patch. So now you've got this camera that's on your local network that somebody could remote exploit. Like, that's a bad thing. Uh, and so I said, well, i got to replace that camera. And I was going to get a Nest, but then Amazon announced this new camera. I thought I'd try it out first. Uh, but it, it just shows you, like, there's some of these vendors, and... and Foscam is not exactly a leading brand here in the U.S., no. uh, but they're, they're cheap and easy to throw in, and they, they're PTZ and, and all that. They're pretty cool cameras. Yeah. The but, broken English manual should have been my first tip-off. You know? Yeah, and, and so if there's a vulnerability, they're not going to tell you about it. Uh, and if you go to their website, they have like all these instructions on securing the camera, which basically say don't connect to the internet, which is the whole purpose of the stinking camera in the first place. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you have the same model as I do. I don't but, know. Uh, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll have that discussion offline. Yeah, so I'm not. So I actually I brought it. It's, it's in the cabinet. Oh, I, good, good. I brought it in the office. Oh, so I, I could have like, just oh, had that. I should exploit this thing for the show. People would enjoy that. So. Well, it's funny because I've just been noticing recently how it's been quicker. Before I'd push left or right, and it would wait five minutes and all of a sudden the camera would shoot to the right or shoot mm -hmm. to the left and, and now it's really nice and responsive and I did see something the other day I think I updated the firmware but um, so hopefully that means I'm on a different well, one but or, things, things look great at the house or right maybe somebody's already broken into yours and they're like why is this so slow and they fixed it for it's you a, 
Yeah, it's just a mirror set up. It's one of those. I've seen enough Arnold Schwarzenegger movies to know how they can do that. But you're gonna pull a tracking device out of your nose next. Well, uh... (laughs) so did you said is that the only thing you got on on Cyber Monday? Uh, yeah. Oh no, I I bought that last week. So yeah, I I messed with it, but I didn't buy it on Cyber Monday. No Cyber Monday deals for you. Not for me. Well, my uh, pup socks at (laughs) GoPupSocks.com. Should be coming any day now, and uh, I'll appreciate that 10% off for mentioning Go Pup Socks, the finest <laughs> custom face sock manufacturer. Uh, actually, oh, I haven't seen them yet, so who knows? They, you, could, they could be terrible. They are you moonlighting great. for Pup Socks? I, I am. I'm, a, I'm an influencer now. I'm an influencer. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a podcast that like, tens of people uh, rev- watch this podcast Our weekly. web traffic went up by literally five people. <laughs> You know, it would be noticed from the seven they normally get. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else you want to talk about, Don, before we wrap All up? All right. I think that's it for week 48. We'll, we'll see. Week 49 should be more exciting because week 48 involved holidays. <laughs> yeah. Week 49 is more of a full week and a regular week. We don't have, uh, what, what do we have? Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday, which, you know. Yeah. And whatever. Wednesday was and and now now Thursday so um, all right well that's gonna about do it for us this time uh, like we said uh, make sure that you take your High Sierra uh, MacBook wherever you go and never <laughs> let it leave your site and uh, go home and and burn your Foscams apparently as well so we that's go. what I'm gonna do so signing off we'll <laughs> see you guys next time here on the IT Pro TV podcast. 